Revelation 14, 1 through 5. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they were blameless. We are continuing. Uh, our series uh, through uh, the the mysterious book of Revelation. Uh, if you're if you're new or tuning in online for the first time, uh, my name is Chris. I'm the founding pastor of this church. We are super passionate uh, about God and about His Word. We typically go through books of the Bible, passage by passage, scripture by scripture, verse by verse. We're right now in the book of Revelation. Um, Last week, we answered probably some of the biggest questions that people have had about the book of Revelation, like, like, what does 666 mean? Like, who is, who is the Antichrist? Uh, you know, like what, what, like uh, what, what does all that mean? And so, uh, if you missed it, um, you know, it's uh, you missed out. It's Donald Trump. Just kidding, (laughs) but. it, but seriously, like it's uh, what we were learning is that uh, the um, the book of Revelation has so many images and symbols uh, and meaning metaphors for us uh, that are and a message that is really practical, especially for Christians who are suffering. Christians that are feeling the tension between the now and the not yet. What we mean by that is that like, we experience the benefits of knowing Jesus and following him right now, but yet we long for a day when all suffering, all tears, all evil will be gone, will be def- like, uh, uh, com- completed, will be vanquished. And so how do we live in that tension between the now and the not yet? And that's what the book of Revelation is about. So let me pray for us, uh, and then we'll start working our way through the first few verses of Revelation 14. Father, your word is a gift. It is honey to our lips. It is food for our souls. It ignites a fire, a holy fire in our bones. So I ask God, I plead and pray that you would speak truths by the Holy Spirit through me, that the words that I say are true, good, beautiful, and that all of us, Lord, myself included, as we work our way through this text, may we see just the wonders and the glories of of who you are and what it means to be found in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. So on Tuesday, uh, January 3rd, 1956, uh, five missionaries, uh, they landed on a a strip of land in in the jungles of Ecuador. And for years, this group of missionaries, they've, they've dreamed of reaching 
the native Alkins, which is this dangerous tribe that lived in the jungles of Ecuador of about 60 people. It was a remote tribe, a secluded tribe, a dangerous tribe, notoriously dangerous, and yet these five missionaries said, hey, we want to we wanna go there, we want to risk our lives, put them on the line, and try to, try to reach this tribe with the good news of Jesus. We want these folks to know that Jesus not only came for them, but he lived, died, and rose from the grave so they might have hope and eternal life in him. And that weekend... After they landed on Sunday afternoon, when they were supposed to radio in back to headquarters, uh, they didn't. And so the people back home, they they waited, and when no message came, eventually a rescue party was sent. And these five missionaries, their, their bodies were found, impaled to death. They were martyred for the sake of Christ. They lost their lives, but I mean, through their sacrifice, this, this tribe would, in the coming months and years, get to know something about the beauty of the gospel. But in that moment, in that tragedy, that weekend, four young wives lost their husbands, nine children lost their fathers. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot, uh, who is the wife of Jim Elliot, one of the missionaries on that group, she wrote in a journal that the whole world called this instance a nightmare of a tragedy. Then she comments that the world didn't recognize the truth in one of her husband's life mottos, which is this, that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to, to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. You see, Jim Elliott, he he saw through the lies of the culture and what creation has to offer us, he realized that there is far greater value in a relationship with the creator and the new creation that God promises. One of the other missionaries' three-year-old child was overheard that weekend telling a crying new baby that was his his young sibling, telling this child, don't worry, when we get to heaven, I'm going to show you which one is daddy. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. So what about you? Are you willing to give up what you could never keep in order to gain that which you can never lose? Like when you're, when you're forced to choose between the present comforts of this world and the future reward of glory, what will you choose? When you're forced to choose between worldly pleasures, which are temporary and eternal joys, what will you choose? I mean, we've seen in the last couple chapters of Revelation that we have a very real enemy, Satan, who's depicted as a dragon. And this dragon is angry. He's raging in anger against the church. We read about that in chapter 12 and chapter 13. He seeks to devour us and to deceive us. And so when, 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 when our enemy is seeking to lead us astray, 
when he's seeking to destroy us, where's our hope? Where does a Christian find hope? How can we endure through persecuting powers? How can we endure in the face of seduction? The answer is found in chapter 14, where we get a glimpse into the church's future. Here's our main point, the big idea for this afternoon, is that for those who endure through persecuting powers and seducing temptations, which is what we looked at last week, for those who endure through those, there is a glorious reward and the eternal joy of Christ's presence. For those who endure through persecuting powers and seducing temptations, there's a glorious reward in the eternal joy of Christ's presence. We're going to unpack that now from the first five verses of Revelation 14. Let's look at point number one. We're going to look at the multitude of the Lamb. The multitude of a lamb. We see this in verse one when John says, while he's having this vision, he says, then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb. And with him, 144,000, whoa, uh, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, I want you to to, to notice just a stark contrast between this chapter and the previous two chapters, right? Remember in Revelation 12, we were introduced to our enemy, the dragon. And in Revelation 13, which we looked at last week, that dragon works behind the scenes, behind the curtain, to either destroy God's people or deceive them. And he works through two beasts, two almost like mega demonic forces. One of them seeks to destroy and devour God's people through persecution, persecuting governing powers throughout the world. The other beast works through deception, through false prophets and teachers, through the allure of the world. I want you to notice the strong contrast between those chapters and this one. We read about the dragon, about his beasts, but now here, Here John looks, and he sees the Lamb, the Lamb of God. He sees Christ in all his glory. This is the Lamb that we read about in Revelation 4 and 5. This is the Lamb, and he and his followers, the Lamb and his followers, are dominating the scene here at the beginning of chapter 14. There's no more dragon. There's no more beasts. Now front and center is the Lamb and his followers, this, this isn't a beast who appears like a lamb, like a counterfeit lamb, which we saw last week. No, this is the lamb himself. This is the one who was worthy to slit open the seven seals. And in contrast, in contrast to the beasts we saw before who are enraged and who have to rise up, this lamb, he's just standing there. He's standing, he's just just chilling, stationed on high. And the beast, the beast we read about before, they're they're temporary. They, They rise up and then they fall. But this lamb, no, this lamb, he's he's permanent. This lamb, he's established. This lamb, he is taking his stand and he's holding his ground and in no way. Is he ever threatened? 
Notice the other point of contrast that instead of rising up out of the cursed ground in the cursed sea like the beast did, the place and sphere that this lamb stands is on Mount Zion. Now, what's the significance of that? What's the significance here of Mount Zion? Remember, John, John uses geography in the same way that he uses numbers. He uses geography as theological symbols. For example, in chapter 11, he talks about uh, witnesses to the gospel that are in Sodom and in Egypt, which were places that were known for persecuting God's people. And so John names Sodom, he names Egypt, but his point is, is that Christians living between the now and the not yet, we're often a persecuted people. We're going to read later in a future chapter about Babylon, which signifies worldly systems that are in rebellion against God. We're actually going to look at that next week. And so, and so what is the significance of Zion? Uh, you guys seen the Matrix movies? Right? Remember in the Matrix, there's this fictional city called Zion, which in the movies is sort of a parody of the biblical uh, city of Zion. But when Neo, the main character in the Matrix, when he first hears about this city and he asks, Zion, like, what, what, what is Zion? What, what is this place you speak of? Uh, one of the other characters, Tank, he responds by saying, hey, if the war is over tomorrow, Zion is where the party will be. And there's some truth to that. There's some truth to that. Zion is where the party will be. We're going to read about that party to end all parties later in Revelation. But the point is that the very presence of God and the Lamb are the essence of Mount Zion. The Lamb is here. He's established. He's standing. God reigns. There's no more evil. There's no more suffering. Every tear is now wiped away. And it is time to celebrate. The place of that celebration on the last day is Mount Zion. And what we see here in Revelation 14 is that's where the lamb is. It's where he reigns. It's the home of righteousness, the new Jerusalem, where God's people will eternally exist in the supreme joy of God's presence. John then draws our attention to this 144,000. Right? Now, where have we seen this number before? We saw this number, 144,000, back in chapter 7. And if you're paying attention, you, you, you've, you've, you've probably gathered by now that that number is not a literal number, right? It's a symbol. It comes from 12 times 12 times 1,000. The first 12 represents the tribes of Israel, which represents the old, the God's people under the old covenant. Uh, the next 12 represents the apostles, uh, of Jesus the Lamb in, under the, the New Covenant in the New Testament. And the number 1,000 is just this general number that suggests a whole lot of people, a multitude. So that number, 12 times 12 times 1,000 or 144,000, is basically a way of saying, hey, look, this is all of God's people. All of God's people under the old covenant plus the new covenant, all of God's elect, all of God's people throughout history, that's who's surrounding the Lamb. And the end of verse 1 tells us that this 144,000 people has the name of the Lamb and God the Father written on their foreheads by the Spirit of God. 
Now, this is another contrast from chapter 13, where the followers of the beast are given the mark of the beast on their foreheads to show and signify who it is that they belong to. We established last week that the mark of the beast isn't a physical mark, right? Not like we see in a lot of pop culture depictions of the apocalypse or in like some dispensational theologies, like it's not a uh, physical mark on your forehead, but rather the head represents where your ideology lies. It represents how it is that we think. That's how the beast in chapter 13, that's how he gets into your life. He gets into your thought life. What you believe, what you give your imagination to, anything in your thoughts that gets elevated to the place of God, to the place of your worship, the thing that defines who you are, the thing that gives, that gives you a sense of self and identity, the thing that you grant the authority to tell you who you are and where to find meaning in life, that's where the beast gets you. And when it's based on a lie, then you have the mark of the beast on your forehead. Not some barcode tattooed on your forehead, right? No, it's, it's a symbolic representation. And so in the same way that followers of the beast are given the mark to show of the mark of the beast to show they belong to him, the people of God now in chapter 14 are given a mark or a seal of the Holy Spirit. Both marks display who owns you, but only this seal, this mark, provides protection. People without this seal, people without the name of the lamb on their foreheads will not escape. God's judgment, as we'll see next week. Now this, this seal, this, this mark of the Lamb and of God on our heads is good news for the suffering Christian. It's good news for the tempted Christian because it tells us that for all of the dragon's raging assaults, all the people of God will be preserved. Not a single one of them will ever be lost. That's why Jesus could say in John chapter six, that's why he could say, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing or no one of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So who's the multitude of the lamb? There with him in Mount Zion, the holy city at the party to end all parties. The church is there. God's people are there. God's blood bought people. And if you're a follower of Jesus this afternoon, that means you're there among that 144,000 with all the people of God. Next thing we see, in addition to the multitude of the lamb, is that we see that there's a melody that they sing. Number two, we see the melody they sing. We first see this in verse two and then verse three. When John says, after seeing this vision of the lamb on Mount Zion and, and the 144,000 around his throne, he says in verse two, then I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. 
The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So what is the multitude doing? The multitude is, is they're singing. They're singing a new song. And like we said in our call to worship, this, this new song language is actually taken from the Old Testament. You see it many places throughout the Psalms. And it's not to imply a freshly composed song, but rather it signifies when we sing to, as, as a response to a fresh experience of God's grace. Look, this is why God's people are a singing people. This is why God's church is a singing church. If you chase down each reference to a new song in the scriptures, you'll discover that the new song refers to this fresh impulse that comes from the heart, a fresh impulse of gratitude, a fresh impulse of of joy in worship that's stimulated and brought about by a mighty work of God. New victories, new triumphs, new realities make a new song. In Psalm 40, David says, he, speaking about the Lord, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. You see, this song, this new song, it shapes the singer's to share their experience of grace, to belt it out for the world to hear, to share their experience of amazing grace with anyone that has the ears to hear. Songs are not only meant to be sung, songs are meant to be heard. And look, this is fascinating. He says, John says in Revelation that only the 144,000 actually know the words to this new song. In the end of verse 3, he says, no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. His point there is to drive home the staggering truth that sinful sinners like me and like you are the ones who are qualified to sing in a way that even no angel can. You notice it says they sing this song before the four creatures, the four heavenly creatures in Revelation 4 and 5. And they sing this song before the elders. This song isn't the song of the creatures and the song of the elders. No, this is the song of God's redeemed people. It's the mystery of salvation that First Peter says angels long to look at this. They long to look and to say this song, but this song is a song of the redeemed. I want you to notice really quick three comparisons that John gives of this singing. He says, first, that it's like the roaring of many waters. How many of you guys have ever heard the sound of roaring waters? You ever stood, you ever been to like Niagara Falls or by like a, a, a large waterfall? Do you hear the sound of rushing, roaring waters, the just constant repeat? It's deafening, right? 
It's deafening. It makes no difference where you stand, whether you're up at the top of the waterfall, whether you're down below getting the mist all, all over your clothes, whether you're behind the waterfall. It doesn't matter where you stand. This comparison to roaring waters conveys the great power of this new song. It's mighty. He also compares it, he says, it's like the sound of loud thunder. You guys know the sound of thunder too, right? Of a raging thunderstorm. I mean, it's a spectacle. A few weeks ago, uh, uh, we, we had a bunch of our neighbors over for, for Taco Tuesday. The, 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 and, uh, if you remember, it was this, this, this night where um, this rainstorm came in. It was raining and hailing at one point. Uh, there was this big lightning storm that went about. I Man, the kids, they all, they all ran outside. Some of them were sitting like inside our cars or in the truck beds or on top of our minivans with their little umbrellas out. Like, uh, and we're like, no, you can't hold the umbrella up like that, right? But like, we're, like it, was, it was just a spectacle. They wanted, they wanted to see it. They wanted to hear it. They wanted to feel the quake. Thunderstorms can be frightening even, can't they? I mean, it got to one point where the thunder was so loud that the kids were like screaming at the top of their lungs and running back inside the house. This comparison that John makes conveys the volume of this new song. It's a sound that is everywhere. It can be heard for miles away. He also says it's like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Now, in the 21st century, when we think of harps, we think of sort of like soft meditation music, right? Like we think of like that cartoon, right, with a, with a harp like floating in the clouds, or we think of like sitting at a beauty spa. But what I want to say is, is don't let yourself be fooled by our cultural perspective. Because back then, a harp was like the instrument. It was the instrument of popular compositions. It was like a guitar. It was like an electric guitar. It's associated with joy and gladness and celebration. In the Old Testament, when God's people are taken into Babylonian captivity, because they're, they're so distraught by being uh, in, un, in captivity, they say, you know, we, we're going to hang up our harps. In other words, that's their way of saying there's no time for celebration. And so in chapter 14, when John says it's like the sound of many harps, it's to convey the number of their choir. It's to convey the nature of their celebrating. It's a way of saying, hey, let's turn this and crank it up to 11 because of what the lamb has done for us. Out of all people, God saved us. He redeemed us. Look, man, sometimes we, sometimes we, we withhold or hold back our praise because we're just like complacent in our faith. But not on that day. Not on that day. Sometimes our praise is just uttered out like this meaningless ritual. But not on that day. Sometimes 
Sometimes we're too embarrassed to praise God with our voices. But man, let me tell you, not, not on that day. Not on that day. See, the multitude of the lamb is there on Mount Zion, up with the lamb. They're sealed and protected by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's triumphant over the dragon, who's triumphant over his beasts, and in their mouths is a new song to sing. Then John continues in his passage, and he now gives us point number three, the marks that distinguish them. The marks that distinguish them. So we've seen that there's a multitude of the lamb. This multitude has a melody to sing. But now they have marks that are laid out in the next couple verses that distinguish them and set them apart from those that follow the dragon and his beasts. What is it that distinguishes these people from those who belong to the dragon and his beasts? First, it's their covenant faithfulness. Their covenant faithfulness, we see this at the beginning of verse 4, when it says, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, that's an odd verse, right, at face value? <laughs> that's, a, that's a strange way to word it, right? Is John suggesting that only dudes may, make it to heaven? That only 40-year-old virgins make it in? Like if that was the case, then like 144,000, like, you're like, yeah, I guess that could be a literal number, right? Like, that seems feasible. But no, he's speaking like he's been speaking the last several chapters in apocalyptic images, like he has from the very beginning. He's using Old Testament language, Old Testament images to convey a theological truth. And in the Old Testament, the people of God are referred to as a virgin daughter of Zion. And they're described as a virgin daughter of Zion so that when they are unfaithful to God, she's described as a whore and a harlot. For example, God says to Israel in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1 and then verse 6, he says, you have played the whore with many lovers. And would you return to me, declares the Lord? Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? And then a few verses later, he says the tribe of Judah took her whoredom so lightly that the whole land got polluted by it. Now look, I know that this is colorful language, right? This, this is colorful imagery, but it's given to us in colorful imagery in order to convey the great scandal of turning from the God who made you and loves you and is faithful to you and turning instead to things that will never satisfy you, things that corrupt and damage your soul, things that will separate you from eternal joy, from your maker. God uses this language, this colorful language, to speak of his covenant people even in the New Testament. Paul says of the Corinthian church, he says, I present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Now, I want to clarify because of this colorful imagery. Like, I want to clarify something important here. John is using this graphic imagery to make a point 
of how tragic and how daunting and how scandalous spiritual adultery is. He's using this imagery to make a point of spiritual adultery, which is our unfaithfulness to God, not to shame anyone of physical adultery, as if there's no hope for those of us who are sexual sinners. I think that's an important point to make here. It's an important point to make that sexual sin and shame does not disqualify you from the kingdom of God if you repent, right? Because somebody might read this and think that, that but with the way that God talks about this, that this means that if, you have, if you're carrying sexual shame because of your past, that there's no place for you in the kingdom of God. But that's just not the case. That's not the case. Like look at, at the gentle and lowly heart of Christ the Lamb who laid down his life down at the cross for sexual sinners like us. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus sat down and he ate with prostitutes. And the self-righteous religious people looked on and they hated that. Because a meal in Jesus' culture at that time, the meal defined social boundaries. It, who you sat down with with a meal and who you didn't would tell others who is approved and who is not. Sharing a meal was an intimate thing because to share a meal was to share a bowl. You would stick your hands in the same bowl of food together. Everyone double dipped and nobody cared. It was a sacred thing. Sharing a meal said, I accept you, not just into my home, but into my people. So don't let... Your sexual sin and the accusations of the enemy because of your sexual sin keep you from coming to the table of the Lord. That's exactly what the dragon would want. John Piper has some sharp words for our enemy, the devil, who seeks to use our sexual shame as a weapon to keep us from Christ. He says, Oh, yes, my enemy, this much truth you do say that I have sinned. I'm bearing the indignation of the Lord. But that is where your truth stops and my theology begins. Because he, the very one who is indignant with me, our holy God, he will plead my cause. You say he is against me and that I have no future with him because of my failure. But that's what Job's friends said, and that is a lie. And you, dragon, are a liar. My God, whose son's life is my righteousness and whose son's death is my punishment, will execute judgment for me. For me. For me and not against me. You see, covenant faithfulness does not mean that you never sin. Covenant faithfulness means that when you do sin, you repent and you turn to Christ the Savior. In Revelation 21, the church is described as the bride of Christ who will be clothed in white because of what he, Jesus, is the Lamb of God, has done to take away the scarlet sins of the world. You see, the point here is to distinguish the multitude of the lamb with the followers of the beast. 
The point here is to say, look, the multitude of the lamb, they have not slept with the beast of Babylon. They are spiritually monogamous. They're marked by their covenant faithfulness. Second, they're marked by wholehearted discipleship. Verse four continues and it says, it is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You follow the lamb wherever he goes, even in the face of suffering for the faith. So when Jesus tells his disciples in the Great Commission, go and make disciples, what he's saying is so much more than go and make converts. He's saying go and make disciples, disciples, go and make ongoing followers who will follow the lamb wherever he goes. Look, the question for us is never, will I be a disciple? Because everyone on the face of the planet, regardless of your class or creed, whatever background you have, everyone on the face of the planet is a disciple of someone or some ideology. And so the question is, uh, the question is not, will I be a disciple? The question is, whose disciple will I be? The question is never, will I be influenced by a spirit? The question is always, of all the spirits in the world, which will I yield to? The question is never, will I live by the values of a kingdom? Because we all do. The question is, of all the kingdoms competing for my allegiance, whose kingdom will I live for? Whose kingdom values will I live for? Which king will I follow? The multitude in chapter 14 are those who make a habit and a rhythm of following the lamb, no matter what, for richer or for poorer, in plenty and in want. Even when the world hates you for it, they're going to be faithful to follow the lamb. Thirdly and lastly, the multitude are those that are set apart for the purposes of God. They're set apart for God's purposes. We see this at the end of verse four when it says that these are those that have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. What does he mean there? He's using, he's using a harvesting imagery from the Old Testament where your first fruits, like when, when, you, when you had a farm and some land and you'd harvest your crops, your first fruits, in other words, the first portion of what you harvested would be devoted to God. That's where we get the idea of the tithe from, right? It's not your, it's not your last 10%, it's your first 10%, right? You don't give to God uh, what is left over. You commit because he first gave to you. You commit to him first. That's the first item, on, item line on your budget. He's using harvesting imagery. He's, and this, this points to, this talk of the first fruits points to a greater harvest to come. Saying that these 144,000 have been purchased for God and the Lamb for a greater end, which we see in verse 5, which is this. Verse 5 says, In their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. And when he says in their mouth no lie was found, this isn't to say that these, the, these people in the multitude are mere truth tellers. It's also to say that they are lie haters. Remember who we met in the last two chapters? We met the dragon, who is considered the accuser of the world. 
The first beasts who were told told blasphemous lies. The second beasts who were told deceived many people with lies. And so the issue is not general lying. The issue is the big lie. The big lie that meaning, life, and joy can be found apart from the Lamb of God. That's why when you see how Paul describes unbelievers in chapter 1 of Romans, he says that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped the creation rather than the creator. So when he says no lie was found, what he's saying is that those who belong to God, those who belong to the Lamb, that were followers of the Lamb, They're faithful in their task of speaking the message of the gospel in truth and without compromise. And he says they are blameless, which is not to say that they are perfect and without sin, but that when they do sin, they hate it. They're repenters. What is the purpose that the multitude is set apart for? In this context... We see that they're set apart to be lovers of the truth and haters of the lie. They are the witnesses in Revelation 11 who are hated because of their uncompromising witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, yet endure. They're the real Christians, the ones who follow Christ even when there's much to lose the ones who are giving up what they could never keep in order to gain what they could never lose. Why? Why is this passage here? Why is Revelation 14 here? Because the Spirit wants you to see the future destiny and the glorious reward for those who endure ridicule and suffering and deception at the hands of the dragon and his beasts. Future destiny and glorious reward is that Christ and his church triumphs. Christ and his church is victorious, not like this music stand. You see, the greatest example, the greatest example that we have of wholehearted following, of being willing to give up what you cannot keep in order to gain what you cannot lose, the greatest example we have is Christ himself. Instead of clinging to the glory that is his, he emptied himself of his divine privilege in order to sacrificially endure the horrors of the cross in our place for our sins. You see, for Jesus, it's not, it's not even giving up what he cannot keep to gain what he'll never lose, but it's even more than that. It's actually giving up what he could never lose in order to gain what he will always keep. And what he'll always keep because of his death and resurrection is eternal joy and hope for sinners like me. Eternal joy and hope for sinners like us. 
Jesus self-imposed a laying down of what was rightfully his so that he could purchase for us what we do not deserve. Eternal life and supreme joy of sinners from every generation, every tribe, and every tongue. that a good reason to sing a new song? We have a new song to sing. And we look forward to the heavenly concert on the last day when we sing that new song with all the saints from all the ages. Till then, let us be people who are marked by covenant faithfulness, wholehearted discipleship, the purposes of God, by the grace of God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no dot com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.